Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Product Check series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. And today, in our run of fabulous podcasts about pricing, uh, since price is our box of the month, is none other than Dr. Mark Snyder. Hi, Mark. What about the best minds comment? I let it go this time. I let I, I let it pretend like you were. I gave it to you. I took it away last time, and I was feeling bad. And I, I you know, yeah, yeah, no, like you know, an okayest mind in the industry. But no, but when it comes to pricing, you do have one of my favorite minds in the in the industry, and I always enjoy talking pricing with you. Thank you. I appreciate it. The the only good news is I'm so confident about what I think I know. I have to be right. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be right. And again, you taught me a lot about pricing. So if you're not right, Mark, then <laughs> I won't know. But exactly. In this series, we've been exploring like different stories and trends that we've been reading in the news and how they relate to pricing and then how those concepts relate to our listeners. And today's topic is one that if anybody has tried to move in the last 18 months, they are very, very aware of the skyrocketing pricing of new houses or, or homes, whether you're buying or renting, uh, as well as the really competitive market out there. Uh, we indeed, when we moved across country, experienced this. So I think that is what we're going to talk about today. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. But, so, and any of us that own real estate, we love the fact that this is happening. <laughs> anyone trying to buy real estate, not so much. <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think you know we we've all we've all seen the stories, the the price wars, the bidding above of above asking, the like you know final close envelope, best and final offers that you put in, uh, and you're still not getting it. You're losing the cash offers and all these things. And I think for most people, when we started having this conversation, I I was like, I feel this pain having bought a house recently, but I don't know, you know, how it relates to our audience, right? How, how many of us have products like housing, right? Where you're, where the, the supply and demand is so focused at one spot. So I'm very excited to hear you talk about how this kind of trend in the industry has some real lessons that our listeners can learn. Yeah, I think what's interesting about this is it may not be that anybody says, hey, we have products like houses or you could almost argue used cars are like the housing market in some way. Uh, or the car market in general is like the housing market. And, and we may not have markets that look like that all the time, but regardless, I, I think we can learn pricing lessons from almost any market. Once we look at what's going on, we say, oh yeah, this is how people are making decisions. And this is why companies are making those decisions. And can we find reasons or ways that we as our company or we as a customer would make decisions that way that make sense? So I think just, just analyzing people's decisions is fascinating to me. What are some of the things that you think about and just in, let's go to the story we're talking about here with houses. What are some of the decision factors that play really heavily in there in your mind? Well, the fact that inflation is happening in housing so rapidly right now mm. that we can talk about the buyer side, the seller side doesn't matter today on the buyer side. If I were trying to buy a new house, which thank goodness I do not have to buy a new house right now, but if I were trying to buy a new house, 
I'd be struggling with the, well, I have to, I have to do it quickly because the house prices is going up another 5% next month. And so I wouldn't have as much thought into the process as I might have before. When we think about where do we get value and how do we make decisions right now, this concept of the price is going to go up so rapidly, so quickly, almost makes it so it doesn't matter about anything else other than we have to make the purchase, right? We have to get into that house today. And it's, and it's really hard. Because it, you know, it's just going to get worse tomorrow. You don't have an end of the bubble, right? Yep. And some of the articles that we read, just so everybody knows, we were given a few articles to read. We did our homework. That's what that yes. is. My daughter's listening. Okay, good. <laughs> and, uh, and some of the articles we read, uh, Zillow is predicting, what, 17.5% mm-hmm. um, year-on-year growth next year, a year from now. So that's still huge. And it's, I mean, I, I think part of us thought it was, it was short-term, right? COVID opened up lots of opportunity for people to relocate uh, if they wanted to, but as that stopped, it would slow down. But that, that is not how it's, it's acting uh, and it's not what we're seeing today. So yeah, and, and in that case, if it's going to keep going for the next 18 months and you want something anytime soon, you should get in there now. On, on the reverse side of that though, there's not a huge rush for a, a seller unless they're trying to buy something else, right? Because the predictions would just show, I don't have to get out where the market's hot. The market is going to stay hot. But the longer I stay, they go. Yeah. And so let me, let's do some math. I don't, I know you love it when I do math on the podcast. Maybe you'll finish the math this time. That would be good. (laughs) (laughs) So, so let's pretend for a second that we're going to buy a house for a hundred thousand dollars. Not that they exist, but let's pretend that we can buy one for $100,000. You're going for the easy math. I get you. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And uh, and we could put 20% down to buy the house. Okay. That's $20,000. A year from now, that $100,000 house is worth $120,000, assuming Zillow's right. I just doubled my money Mm. in terms of the down payment I put down. Everybody and their brother should be buying real estate if they believe that Zillow prediction. Right. If, you, if you can get in at a 20% down payment, you're going to double your money in a year, which is incredible. So that says demand is huge. And as you pointed out, the flip side of that says, those of us who have real estate, why would we ever sell it? Well, it's because uh, you guys don't know this, but right now, uh, Mark is in, in Vegas for a, a conference. And the reason you would sell it is the same thing we used to say when I lived in Vegas. Like, the money doesn't count until you walk out of the casino with it right? <laughs> Why you own the property is all theoretical until you cash that out. So uh, the, the bubble will come down at some point, I guess. But yes, it's the, it's March trying to figure out when, when are you predicting when you're at the top of the peak? Yeah. And, and that's why housing is such an interesting investment because it's an investment you make and you actually get to use it. You get to live in it. You get to stop mm-hmm. paying rent. And, and so you get these huge advantages out of the real estate. But at the same time, you're getting great appreciation for your, for your investment. So everybody wants it. Very few people want to sell. And let's make the problem even worse. There are, this was not in our reading, but I happen to know this. <laughs> there are large hedge funds that are out buying up single family homes that are relatively inexpensive for the sole purpose of renting them out. And so that's now taking more houses off the market. It's making it even harder for people to make this, to, for people to buy, buy houses. And then, and it was a five years ago or so, we started a housing glut 
Uh, we're not building houses as fast as we could be, as fast as we should be. And the fact that there's no labor right now, nobody can hire anybody, says that we're not building houses as fast as we could be or as fast as we should be. So the housing market is a little weird. It's a little messed up. So is it then, with all of those things that you that you just mentioned, is it purely a reflection of supply and demand? Is that at the core, why we're talking about the housing market is a, it's a question of supply and demand, in which case, super relatable <laughs> to our audience in lots of different ways. Well, so yes, the answer is easily yes. Supply and demand, I think, drives the housing market. It drives the reason why used cars, the price of used cars actually went up 20% last year. Amazing, isn't that? Crazy. It's like, it's usually that's the one place you can be sure you'll get you'll depreciate is the value of your car. <laughs> exactly. It was, it was absolutely insane. Uh, and so, yes, this is absolutely a supply and demand issue. But I, I want to take issue with one thing you said, and that is you, you implied, well, now it's absolutely relevant. I think in most of our businesses, supply and demand doesn't really matter. Yeah, I was just going to go. So I think, okay, a bunch of people and all my hardware friends listening are like, yes, I totally get this. We're having a chip problem. Like, this is what we do. And then I thought, Oh, but then I'm going to have to point out that for our software people, is there a way that they can create at least the sense of a supply and demand kind of aspect? You know, if you're thinking yeah. of a SaaS, like obviously there, there isn't one, right? I mean, some of the some of the stuff start with like, uh, we're only going to have so many people in at a given time. But even then, it, it feels like maybe not as relevant to our software, but certainly relevant to our hardware listeners. Um, maybe. A little bit more. So, so let me make it relevant. So, I want to say that you're right, Rebecca. You're right. I appreciate it. Even when you're, and you don't believe it, I, I do appreciate it. <laughs> so what you're right about is that the supply chain issues are absolutely hitting our hardware customers, right? All of these hardware companies are dealing with this dramatically right now. Uh, and the software companies are not. So that's a, that's a truism. When we don't have these supply chain issues, I often think of that old Jay Leno commercial for Doritos. Go ahead and crunch them. We can make more, right? And, and when there's no supply chain issues, then hardware in a lot of ways is like software. Yes. We, it's really just how many do we choose to make? What are we going to price it at? How much are people willing to pay? And, and it's really those exact same issues that software people would, would have to decide. But right now with supply chain, you're, you're spot on. The hardware companies are getting killed with not being able to get product. And one of the fabulous things that's happening in, in hardware industries, I love this, is in fact, we have a slide in one of our, in the price deck that talks about how to deal with constraints on supply yep. and what should you do? And, uh, and we don't have this answer in, the, in that slide, but I got to tell you, this answer is really cool. And that is that these companies, if they can't make as much as people want, they've only, they're only making the high-end products because they make better margins on the high-end products hmm. and they don't make the low-end products. Oh, it's totally so, what happened with the cars, right? Oh, gosh, yes. That all the high trims are there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah and, it, and go to the appliance store and say you want to buy a refrigerator. You can't buy an inexpensive refrigerator anymore. They only have the expensive ones out there. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with, with making smart decisions because they're in a big supply crunch. Is there a, a, a is there a software version of this problem or a way in which it would relate to that group of our audience? I think the the way it could relate is the fact that there's a labor shortage in a lot of places right now. 
And for software companies, a lot of times when they bring on new clients, they have to onboard them and they have implementation. And so it may be that they have a hard time with the implementation piece. So there could be a constraint in that respect. But as far as producing the product, they have very little constraint. No, but that did make me think that a lot of us, I think, realize it when we're trying to build our teams right now, right? Everybody's trying to hire and there's not a lot out there. And so again, you're having very competitive markets. You are losing employees you wouldn't normally lose because of, you know, aggressive of poaching because there's so few out there. So I guess it's the equivalent of someone knocking on your door and being like, here's a million dollars. Can I have your house? Yeah. So the software side is, I think they're labor dependent. The hardware side is supply chain dependent, which, which makes a lot of sense to me. Now let's go back to housing for just a second. Because there's a really fun one. I, I mentioned that Zillow was predicting 17.5% increase. Do you remember the article from, I don't know, three months ago or so, where Zillow was buying houses to flip and then they stopped? Oh, that's right. But I, I, but I remember the headline, but I didn't dig into, to the, I, I didn't have homework then. So I <laughs> didn't read, read as to why, because it, it did seem like a, an, an interesting extension of what they did. So what, what made them, what made them start and stop? Yeah, well, I'll give you two answers to the question, uh, which is pretty fascinating. One is the labor problem that we were just talking about, right? If you can buy a house, even if you buy it under market and you know that you could flip it, get it, you know, improve it, do some home improvements and sell it for a much higher price, the question is, can you find people to do the work to improve the house? And right now, that's a challenge for all of us. So that was one big deal. And then the other big issue, which I love this, and I don't think too many people understand this concept, it's called the winner's curse. Mm-hmm. And, and the winner's curse essentially says, let's pretend there's two different companies, uh, company A and company B, and they both do cost plus pricing, which of course we don't recommend. Right. And, uh, and so the one who's going to win the deal is whoever estimates the costs to be the lowest. And so what if they estimate the costs to be much, much lower, uh, you know, incorrectly, they estimate the costs to be way lower than they actually are. It's possible that they lose money. This is called the winner's curse. So now Zillow has this algorithm that's out predicting the value of houses. And so which houses will they win? Well, imagine that they predict a house is worth $300,000 but nobody else in the marketplace is willing to pay more than 250. Zillow says, hey, we'll give you 300 because we predict it's worth that. And of course it's not because there's other people who are local actually seeing it. So I think Zillow in a lot of ways could get caught by that winner's curse issue. I, I don't, I think, and I think I had this problem last time when you explained this to me, uh, just the two of us too. I'm not sure I fully get it. So two people doing the very bad thing and doing cost plus pricing, which I would never do. And the person who estimates the cost the lowest, that makes sense, would set, oh, I get it, would set the price the lowest because they, they believe that's what, you know, their cost plus $10 would be. So they would have the lowest price, their competitor would have the higher price, and they would win more deals because they had a lower price, therefore losing money because they sort of price themselves down into this, this spot. Is that what we're saying? Yes. If, if their cost estimates were way lower than actuals, then they could lose money. And the same thing is true on the other side, right? Okay. So it's not a matter of how much business they got. It's just that if they were wrong, they would have this lot. Right. If they were wrong by a lot, that's the issue. Then why are we calling them winners? Because they won the deal, but they lost money. Okay. And so if Zillow's algorithm predicts a house is worth a whole lot more than it really Mm -hmm. is, they win the sale but they lose money. Right. 
And That's why it's called that. the winner's curse. Okay, I get it. So it's not necessarily setting pricing overall. It's an any given situation. If you're doing cost plus pricing, got it. Then if the, you win that deal and you are off, you are going to lose money. Yeah, the companies that have to worry about this are companies who bid on individual projects. Because every time you do a bid, you sit back and say, this is what we think it's going to take to do this. And you're probably estimating costs. And sadly, you're probably doing some version of cost plus pricing on top of that. And so if you are really off on your cost estimates and you win the deal, you can lose money. Got it. And so Zillow could have gotten, you'd think though, the amount of data they have in this area, they would be, they would be better estimators. You would think that they could be better estimators, but, but the problem isn't, can they estimate correctly most of the time? The problem is which deals do they win? And they certainly win the deals where they estimate the value to be much higher than the market estimates the value. That's true. We all occasionally, I mean, we all, I have been known to go onto Zillow and giggle to myself when <laughs> they tell me what I have was worth, which is not what I got when I sold it. So yes. Dang it. Dang it. All right. So we've got huge issues of supply and demand. We've got the idea of the winner circle piece, which makes sense, or winner's curse, sorry. Which makes sense if, if in the in the Zillow specific example, and I guess anyone who was thinking of buying or flipping in the housing market. What what other lessons can you pull through the crazy housing market? Oh my gosh, this is my favorite lesson too, by the way. And so often, if you know me at all, you know that I rail against cost plus pricing. I think it's just the wrong thing to do. And yet, so often people. But you do? I had no idea. No, I'm kidding. Really. <laughs> And so often people just don't believe me. They're like, well, no, 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 no. This is a situation where you have to do cost plus or this is where cost plus works. So let's talk about housing market for a second. And I'll make it really easy. My mother-in-law bought a house in San Jose, California 50 years ago and paid $40,000 for it. Today, the market says it's worth, let's say it's $800,000. So how much did she charge? $800,000 or $40,000 plus some margin? <laughs> Obviously, 40,000 plus the margin, and I'll be right there. <laughs> <laughs> and so housing is just such a fascinating market. It's such to a great example of cost plus. And like, you want to know why it's a bad idea. Yeah. Or even your example of you buy it and you doubles, doubles your investment in a year, right? Right. Yeah. Next so, time so. someone says it in class that they're like, are you sure cost don't? You're like, let me do that. <laughs> Not my mother-in-law. <laughs> Love it. I just, I just think that's such a fascinating example. And by the way, it's true right now, everybody who has real estate, they're going through that exact thing. They're thinking, how much can I get for my house? And way more than you paid for it. But I guarantee you, you're not thinking, well, I think a 10% margin is fair. I <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I was thinking about some of the other things that are unique about buying a house, right? And like sort of the, the letters you write, like a lot of those are, I mean, again, it, one of the reasons I, I had a much harder time than you with finding the correlations to, to our clients is I think that there's, there is such an emotional aspect to both buying and selling a house. Even when you know it is a financial transaction, right? There is still the, oh, somebody doesn't think my house is worth what I think. Like there's an insult there. And then there's the, you fell in love with the house and that's why you'll overpay for it, right? That is not something we see very often uh, in the B2B space. Yeah, it's actually fascinating because when you go to, um, you're driving down 280 in California by close to San Francisco, 
uh, just south of San Francisco. On the east side of the freeway, there's this huge, it looks like a big igloo house. We used to call it the Fred Flintstone house for whatever reason. And, uh, and it's the weirdest looking house you could ever imagine. And the question is, who would ever buy that? But what's fascinating is it doesn't matter if you and I like it. Mm-hmm. It matters if there's one person out there that loves that house. Yep. And can I find that person who's willing to pay me and sell my house to that person? So segmentation, right? Oh, absolutely. 100%. Man, there are so many lessons. I was so wrong. I talk about that with <laughs> wedding dresses. I remember buying wedding dress and there's a gazillion different styles. And it is every single one of them is somebody's dream dress and someone else's like torture dress right Right. Uh, and so it doesn't matter you doesn't have to you know we're not building something for everybody we're trying to find the right person for the right place which is why you know a good realtor can make a big difference yeah it's actually interesting because i think some of the best realtors are really focused on small geographies Mm. really tiny neighborhoods where they know that neighborhood inside out they made friends with everybody in the neighborhood um, and, and I think they do very, very well because of that. That would be focus. Focus. Yes. So we have supply and demand. We have the winner's curse. We have segmentation. What else okay. do we have? Wait, there's two more things that are driving our really weird housing market. I, I made a few notes before we started this. Okay. Millennials turning 30. Millennials are actually deciding to buy houses now. So there's more and more people buying houses which is causing us a problem. And then uh, everybody who had a job, but still got paid government money, we have all this extra COVID cash laying around. We should go buy a house, don't you think? <laughs> do you think? Or do you think that it's, again, that there's, there's definitely net new, right? People that, that just, the regular trend, right? You age into, I'm getting ready to settle down. I also think there was a fairly large migration out of cities. Uh, and cities were cost prohibitive for many people to buy in. But as they realized they could work from anywhere, that opened the geographies and places that weren't used to having even a competitive market, right? They weren't used to, they weren't boom towns like Arizona. But I don't know, because the pricing levels for houses is so high that the, I am not certain that the COVID cash is, a, is an instigator enough. Do you know anybody who left a big city to a small place? Yes. I live in Maine. There are lots of us. (laughs) There's part of, like, most of downtown New York City. There's a good chunk of it up here uh, and in upstate New York. Yes. (laughs) I know many. So one of the articles I was reading, though, was talking about how New York rents are going back to where they used to be. And I just don't get this. I'm sitting here waiting for the housing market prices to fall in California so I can go buy a house in California. But they're not falling. They're still going up. People are supposed to be leaving. <laughs> well, and actually, one of the articles we read was sort of like everybody left New York City, but now there's a big boon as they come back. So it's it's just I think it's really hard to hard to predict. It is. It is. It is. All right. You said you had two notes. That was only one. I gave you both of them. COVID oh. cash and millennials. Oh, right. I'm not buying one of those. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> you don't have to always be right. Just when you agree with me. Oh. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. So we've got lots of good thoughts about the housing market and how it compares. Uh, what are the two biggest lessons? What are the two things you want people to take away? 
I would say the number one thing that I want people to take away from this and to take away from every pricing situation is that we always put ourselves in the shoes or the minds of our customers and try to figure out how are they making decisions? Why are they making decisions this way? And so they're just like, we're watching the housing market. They're seeing the housing market and they're also watching our markets or our products. And, and so when we understand the way they make decisions, uh, we start to understand better what we should be doing to a help them and b help ourselves. So I like that as number one. Okay. And num- number two, can I make it the, uh, the cost plus with my mother-in-law's house? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you Stop. want people to remember that lesson more than anything else? I know how much that means to you for them to remember not to do cost plus. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it is not clear to me why the world still does that. I, okay, I do know why, but at least know that it's not right when you do it. That would make me right. feel better. I think I think there's just a, a certain amount of simplicity, right, and comfort. There's a mathematical equation. I feel like this is safe uh, that people lack. But but you know, as you teach in the in the price class, there's lots of really established processes and ways to figure out the right value based pricing. And don't be, don't, don't sell your $40,000 house for 50 when you can get 800,000 is, is I think a really good example. That's a really good lesson. Why it matters. Yeah. So I also think a weird analogy that I'm going to give you for a second. If I wanted to dress up in some other culture's clothing, it would make me feel really uncomfortable, right? Not that I felt like I was offending him. I just, it's like, that's not who I am. It's not what I do. It's not my comfort level. And I think cost plus is a lot like that, mm. where, where people have been raised to think, oh, what's a cost? We need a fair margin. That's the price. And even as shoppers, we think, oh, what did they pay for? This is how much they're charging. So that seems fair. It's like the really comfortable clothes we wear, but it just isn't the optimal way to do pricing for any business. I think that's an important lesson. And one that I always like when you come on and pass Mark. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. These are always fun. I appreciate it. Yes. All right. I think that does it. Thank you, Mr. Mark. Appreciate it. And thank you everyone for listening. That does it for today's episode. Don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to elevate your product, your company, and your career.